From the time we are little children, in grade school, we learn to conform. If you were to go to school in Israel, you would wear a little uniform of blue and white. Matter of fact, if you go over here around the South Loop by the Catholic school, you will see little children out there in the playground at recess time all wearing a uniform. The Catholic parochial schools have their children dress in uniforms, and you're very well familiar with all the various youth organizations from Girl Scouts, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, on up to military academies and military schools, to those who go through the officer training or officer candidate programs down at Texas A&M, to our various military academies and the military itself. There's something about blending in, marching to and from classes, everybody doing everything in unison and together that is rather stirring and attractive to people. When you have a lot of people just walking along a mall, it's not very attractive, but if you were to suddenly see a group, all of them exactly attired the same, marching to a cadence with a little band, it's stirring and it's attractive and you want to go and you want to watch and see what's going on. Somehow, however, conformity is being used by Satan the devil and even by church organizations, it was certainly used by Adolf Hitler in the Third Reich, as a very evil thing which causes the complete subjugation of all and the surrender of all individuality, of all individual initiative, and even of individual responsibility. In Romans, the twelfth chapter, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul wrote, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this age, this world, this society, is what is implied. Now, I can stand here and go through a list of old, old movies that date way back to the 40s and 50s. Practically every one of us would raise our hand that we have seen it. I could go through a list of famous persons. We would all understand who that famous person is. I understand that half of the American female populace today is all titillated. I wonder what Liz is going to wear for her sixth wedding. Eight, eight. Oh, listen to me. A typical Armstrong minimization. Eight, eight. Well, I forget, you see, because it's so often. I mean, I just forget how many men this woman has divorced. I understand that her kids are going to say to the new man, Daddy, would you sign my guest book? But uh, I think half of the female populace is all excited about what this, this, uh, this young woman, this beautiful young woman, is going to pick for her wedding dress. Probably going to be white. White with a veil and maybe a train, who knows? Maybe little flower girls and little boys and people throwing rice, wedding bell. They can probably, they, they drag her stuff out, you know, like the old Christmas baubles of last year. She keeps her wedding gowns in a box. She's collected the rice. I'm just kidding, making fun. But, of course, a lot of people don't see that that's funny. They don't see that that is something that uh, is absolutely ludicrous and ridiculous in God's sight that our civilization, our population, that our general public, that our media would beat a path to this woman's door, that the eighth marriage of a woman is news. It boggles the mind. 
Now, how much do you think it costs for one minute of prime time national television? Well, if you ever investigate, it can cost up to $1 million. For us as a church to try to put our ad, just a quick ad, my son Mark or me, to advertise a booklet in the middle of Good Morning America for one minute might cost us about $1 million or a third of our annual, in annual income. But if you happen to watch Good Morning America, every morning they have what I have recently taken issue with, both out of the pulpit, of course, and for many years taken issue with, and in a recent article about heroes, they have what is called, I call, the morning worship hour. It can be a rock star, it can be an author, it can be a movie actress or an actor. The terrible ordeal it is to be away from the kids on location. Uh, how they kick their latest drug habit, uh, how they are trying to overcome alcohol, uh, their latest uh, admission of homosexuality, they recently came out of the closet, whatever it is, and they're hanging on every word, one star interviewing another star. Joan London is a star, and Joan London is interviewing a star. And so it drones on and on and on. And they spend millions upon millions of dollars of television time and prime time when the world is going crazy out here, all kinds of problems everywhere around the world, and things that they ought to be addressing in some depth, and instead it's morning worship hour. How much of a product are we? How much of this world is interesting to us? How much of it fascinates us? To what extent can I turn you off, step on your toes, and make you angry at me by standing up here ridiculing some of your idols? You know, if I were to rush up in the middle of an idolatrous service in the South Pacific and throw a can of red paint right in the face of a grinning, leering stone statue around which about 1,200 savages are cavorting back during the days of Captain Thomas Cook or someone, I could probably get myself run through with a wooden spear, because idol bashing is not a very healthy occupation. But God's Word tells us, be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed, and that means changed, altered, by the renewing of your mind. And that has primarily to do with your values. It isn't the way your mind works. It's not your intelligent quotient, your IQ. It is not your research ability. It is your value system, as they call it today. What you think is important. What you think is fascinating. What is entertaining. What do you like to watch, to listen, to do? Who is your hero? Who is someone who fascinates you? Now, for decades, I knew the Rock Hudson was as queer as a three-dollar bill because my friend Milton Scott, who rubs shoulders with all the Hollywood greats and so on, uh, knew Rock Hudson personally, knew people around him, knew about his various young boys, and knew the whole story. So I wasn't a bit surprised when he died of AIDS. But I, it does make me think that Doris Day, probably, when she found out, well, I won't go into that, forget it, but it, it just gets very, very ugly. But isn't it amazing that time after time after time, even like Jack Benny, everybody knew Jack Benny was queer. And yet millions virtually worship the man who's, oh, Rochester. You know, but nobody tumbled to the fact that the man was a homosexual, even back in the 30s and 40s. 
I'm going to go to a scripture in a minute that is very cogent to what I'm saying, because, as I say, I can keep on here and get almost the entire audience angry at me, which would prove my point, wouldn't it? It would prove my point. He says, Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good. And that means try, test, try it out, see if it works, put it into your life. What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Now, the entire chapter goes on to help us find out how we ought to do that. For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Why does he put that right there about not being conformed to the world? Because the world basically is geared to vanity, to a pecking order, to who is famous, who is popular, who is wealthy, who is successful, who is your idol, who is your hero. What are your credentials? Are you better than someone else, better, better educated, more wealthy? Do you possess more things? And because I don't care what the IQ of certain individuals might be, you can find enough vanity in practically everybody to go around. Now, I can cite all kinds of individual cases. I know a gentleman with whom I talk a great deal who is probably one of the most ignorant men when it comes to do with uh, history, with languages, philology, with archaeology or biology or chemistry or sociology or current affairs or prophecy or what's going on in the world, but is one of the most opinionated human beings who is always right about everything that I've ever met. But his basis for knowledge is almost zero. I remember one time when his own cousin just really ripped into him about his, quote, East Texas provincialism, end quote, over a dinner we shared one time, because he was very exercised because of his own incredible penchant for penny-pinching, and he makes every... He's, as they say, he's tight as his skin on an apple when it comes to money. And when you talk about money matters, he is really excited. He's really interesting. So he had gone over to Europe and back, and his cousin had taken him to Europe and over to England. And when he came back, he was just really angry about the money that the British government allows the queen and the royal family. I tried to explain the background behind English royalty. I even went back to the days of King John and the Magna Carta. I explained that America would never have been a nation without the British. I even explained it, not only historically, how ancient was the practice of all European states, and mentioning the other nations who still have kings and queens, and plenty of kings and queens on the sidelines who might eventually take a throne, including, by the way, in Germany. Mentioning the Netherlands, Norway, and Denmark, and all the Germanic kings of the past, and the kings and queens of history. But I even delved into biblical prophecy and mentioned the Davidic covenant, and that God said there would never fail a person of the royal seed of David to sit on that throne, and where that throne is today. And that at once the English king or queen is the titular head of the Anglican Church to go back and to show that through marriages and through actually breaking away from the papacy and breaking away from some of their own brothers and sisters, cousins, uncles, and so on in Europe, that the British royal family 
was responsible for Great Britain becoming Protestant instead of under the domination of the Roman Catholic Pope. And I went all the way down through, as I said, the very uh, gradual evolution of democracy. And at the end of my long spiel, I had not gained one millimeter of ground. The gentleman was absolutely outraged and exercised that the British government would send all this money over there to Buckingham Palace and provide support for a queen. I got absolutely nowhere with the gentleman. Through the grace of God, he says, every man not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members not the same office, that's talking about our physical body, so we being many are one body in Christ. Now, he's talking about the church. So therefore, he's talking about jealousies in the church. He's talking about difficulties in the church. As we go through this message today, let me ask you this question. Over here is conformity, and over here is absolute anarchy chaotic rebellion. Is there any happy medium in between at all for God's people and God's church during the day now of the Church of God? Currently there's a gentleman who is very exercised, very uptight, very angry with the ministry over the practice of putting this thing here on. Uh, he feels that that is wrong, and he is writing extensively a paper, I don't know what all he's going to say, I can imagine that he's going to talk about the person and the analogy of the person who comes into the wedding supper and the person that has a poor garment and so on and so on. And he is very angry with the local pastor who doesn't want him to lead music, lead the prayer, do special music, or preach sermonettes in a cotton short sleeve shirt, but insists that he ought to wear a jacket and a tie. Now that means that there are many restaurants to which this man would never go. That means that when the mayor of his town has a banquet, he wouldn't go. That means if the governor of his state were to come, uh, he wouldn't attend. That means if he could get a ticket to the next inauguration in Washington, D.C., he would defer. That means that if Christ were to come that day, he would show up in a short-sleeved cotton shirt. Because, you see, he shows up that way, and he is insisting that he ought to be able to show up that way all the time. Is there a happy medium between conformity and rebellion, just total chaotic anarchy? Many people, as they look back their experience in a parent organization, looked at the ministry requiring people to conform, saying, we're going to meet at exactly 2 o'clock on the holy day at thus and such a place. We have had people in the Church of God who, when the local pastor would say that for the convenience of two or three scattered churches, I have found a place, and it's about halfway between these two cities. It's maybe in a conference room at the Holiday Inn, and so for the Feast of Trumpets at 11 o'clock on thus and such a date, we're going to meet in thus and such a city. And a person here and there would say, you can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me where I'm going to meet. Now, is it not the province of the minister to decide such matters, or shouldn't they really have a special business meeting and take a vote? Where all w would you like to meet? 
and then everybody raise their hand or put in a secret ballot or whatever and try to decide where the church is going to meet. Here Paul is dealing with the church. He's dealing with problems within the church, showing that different people have been endowed with different abilities and different gifts. So he says, we being many, in verse 5, are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. Having then gifts, and that's what they are, whether they are abilities, proclivities, natural talents, gifts differing according to the grace that is given unto us, whether prophecy, and that can include inspired preaching and teaching as well as foretelling of events, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, and that means serving, serving, helping, waiting on someone. Let us wait on our ministering. He that teaches on teaching, a lecturer, a teacher, male or female. He that exhorts, all he can do is uh, shake hands and encourage people on exhorting, encouraging people. He that gives, let him do it with generosity, as it says in the margin. He that rules, he has certain responsibilities, whether he is taking care of the local church bank account or the deacon who is helping to open a building and clean it up and put up the chairs, with diligence. He that shows mercy, if you have a chance as a minister or a counselor to help people overcome some of their difficulties, with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor, outdoing, as it should say, one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient when you have trials and tribulations, not caterwauling and spreading all the pain around everywhere else and talking to people endlessly who can do nothing about it to make sure that you have commiseration. But patient when you have a trial, a problem. You just take it almost stoically, knowing that the light at the end of the tunnel will soon appear and that Christ will help you get through it. Continuing constantly, and that means never failing, to continue to go back to prayer, distributing to the necessity, rather, of saints given to hospitality. Here are all of these wonderful attributes of mind. Now, verse 16, it almost looks as if it is a contradiction. Be of the same mind one toward another. But you see, this is inside God's church. Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed so that you become of like mind the same one to another inside the church of God. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Don't repay to one man evil for evil. How many of us have gotten to the point that we are able to do that? Or how many will still bear a grudge or say, I'm not going to get mad, I'm just going to get even. Remember the old statement, I don't get angry, I just get even. A lot of people say that. Sure, you just wait enough time, sooner or later, I am going to get you. For recompense to no man, evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible as much as lies within you, and it isn't always possible because of the other fellow, live peaceably with all men. In Proverbs 1, verse 18, there is some very good advice. And when you look at many of our big cities today, and unfortunately it is even reaching into Tyler. We have heard recently in news reports that the Crips and the Bloods and other gangs among Chicanos and minorities are in Tyler, Texas.
Texas. Beginning in verse 8, My son, hear the instruction of your father, chapter 1, the book of Proverbs, and forsake not the law of your mother, for they shall be like ornaments of grace around your head and chains around your neck, like a gold chain, something of value and attractive. My son, if sinners entice you, consent thou not. If they say, Come with us, let us lay wait for blood, let us lurk privily for the innocent without cause. We can remember, perhaps, when we were youngsters, a group of kids waiting for some other little kid to beat him up on the way home. Well, it's a lot more vicious than that today. Thousands of Americans lie dead every year. In Los Angeles, my wife and I made a wrong turn. I had plenty of time to get to the airport when we were out there, I think, several months ago, and I was visiting with my sister who had had an operation for cancer. We were turning to go down to the Los Angeles airport. And I got off somehow on Western Boulevard and ended up going down through Los Angeles, just west a little bit of uh, USC campus. It was like a wasteland, mile after mile after mile of the ugliest community you have ever seen. The graffiti was so thick it was on top, and they were all, every person with the black spray can who writes the graffiti is utterly illiterate. I never once saw a discernible letter or character of the English alphabet. It was just a lot of signs done by children and youngsters. But a lot of it is satanic, and a lot of it is symbolism of various gangs marking their territory. We went through it every time you'd come. Here we, we were commenting to each other, look at this. Here's a liquor store and a church, then a liquor store and a church, boarded up buildings, Iron grill work on every little shop through mile after mile of West Los Angeles. It was the ugliest area you have ever seen in your life. A deadly area. You don't dare walk through it. And I was somewhat nervous even driving through it. These are the areas of drive-by shootings where increasingly many of the minorities in Los Angeles are attacking other minorities, particularly they're attacking Orientals. There were savage beatings being administered to Vietnamese, Laotians, Cambodians, Koreans, people from China and Hong Kong, people who were escaping horrible conditions in their country and coming to the United States. Mr. Andean, Dr. Andean told me, I believe it is by 2000, the turn of the century, that I think the white population of Los Angeles is going to be something like about uh, 25 percent or something. I think 75, 80. I think he said 80 percent, wasn't it? I forget. Maybe my wife remembered. But he told me, I think by the turn of the century, only uh, 20 percent of the population of Los Angeles will be uh, Caucasian American, and uh, the bulk of those will be Oriental, from the Orient. And many of those people are reacting. So there are gangs, and there are people who actually force other people into gangs. Come with us, let us lay wait for blood, let us lurk privily for the innocent without cause, let us swallow them up alive as the grave and whole as those that go down into the pit. We shall find all precious substance, that's robbery and looting and so on. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have a common purse. We'll pool our money and our resources. My son, walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain your foot from their path. For their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. 
Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, and they lay wait for their own blood. They lurk privately, privily for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone that is greedy of gain, which takes away the life of the owners thereof. Instruction about gangs, about people who through peer pressure are saying to the other person who is hanging back, you're a chicken, come on and go with us. And many of us, especially the males among us, have experienced that. You usually began your first smoking foray as a result of a dare, or if not a dare, peer pressure. Someone offered you one and everybody else around you was doing it. I did. I wanted to be like the other little kids. So here I am at about age 14, maybe 13, with a cigarette in my face, looking like I had just returned from the wars, looking like an old, experienced, rugged, I'm five foot four, I'm real skinny, I'm about 14, and I'm standing there with a cigarette hanging out my lip, leaning against the corner of the little grocery store outside Eugene High School or Junior High School. And I began to smoke, and I found, as I've told you before, very difficult to learn to smoke. I got sick, I coughed, I got dizzy, I fell down to the curb one time, and they said, you're not inhaling. I said, yes, I am, <gasps> for the first time. And then it made me so sick, I fell right down, and it, would, it was very painful to learn to smoke. But I was determined because of the looks of the older boys around me, and I wanted to be like them so bad. In the movies, I could see the guy with a cigarette out of his mouth. I could see the ads of the people with a cigarette in their mouth. All sophisticated people, they tapped the cigarette on the gold case and flipped it open, and they were doing dexterous things with their thumbnails with matches, and it was exciting. I'd even seen men take a match and light it on the seat of their pants. Oh, wow, I wanted to do that. First couple times I tried that, I liked to burnt my pants up, you know, and I, I never could get the cigarette. I never could get the match to light. I've seen people try to light it on a boot or to take two matches together. And I learned all of these things. I learned all the culture of cigarettes, of just which side of my mouth to put it on, and how to talk and watch it wiggle as I'm saying something, and how to draw the smoke into my nose from my mouth and, and just make a, you know, sort of a circular motion out of it, how to blow smoke rings. I've done that. I've even really jazzy, really incredibly uptown, walked in the rain smoking with my pipe upside down so the rain couldn't get in it. And I'm blowing smoke, walking along with my naval uniform, looking in, looking really in because I'm smoking with an upside down pipe. Now, none of you have ever done anything like that, I know. But if you have, you know what I'm talking about. Let's go to Genesis, the 19th chapter. Genesis 19, fascinating chapter. We will read a little bit here about San Francisco, which could be renamed today Sodom. And by the way, before, as we're turning to this, let me remember, you know, I don't know how many, how many of you have ever seen a National Geographic picture of some of the excavations at uh, some of the old cities in Italy, like Pompeii and so on. But my wife and I have visited Pompeii at least twice. And let me tell you that Pompeii is a lot like San Francisco, although their pornography was in great, huge, painted walls. The finest homes had pornographic paintings on each of the walls in their bedrooms. And they are, and it's good art. You can see exactly what these naked people are doing. There's a sex orgy underway. It was painted in the third century A.D. 
I remember, without going into great detail, the fellow, he's all sneaky, and he wants now for a tip, I'll let you see this, and so on. Well, they got a wooden, little wooden latch over a painting on the exterior of a home, a very famous person's home, a very wealthy person's home in Pompeii. So you tip the guy who was the guide, and he takes out the key and opens it up, and of course the women blush and turn away, and the men let out a gasp and kind of leer and look at it. It's unbelievable. And here is a little man, I won't go into great detail, except to say that the male member is uh, probably half again as big as he is. It's being weighed in a huge big uh, scales, and the other end of the scales is a cornucopia of all sorts of produce and vegetables. And it is showing that the weight is tipped in favor of the little guy. And, of course, here are all the statuary and so on with gross and sometimes grossly disproportioned uh, human anatomy in, in the Pompeii of that day. Maybe some of you haven't been to Pompeii, but it's a trip through ancient pornography. Now, if you go to any average hotel in a big city today, you'll notice movies for pay. We checked into a hotel, Dave and Molly Antion and my brother-in-law and sister, my wife and I, and Cheryl was in the other room, and I think David Antion or somebody turned on the TV. No, my sister Dottie did by mistake, and she turned it on, immediately comes on to pay TV. And boom, right in front of our eyes before we could turn it off, I won't go into detail what it was, but it was two naked human beings in the act of uh, lovemaking. Now, they try to be decorous, and they don't show every detail, perhaps, but it was obvious what they were doing, and it was absolutely disgusting. And Dottie was saying, oh, no, you know, Molly says, oh, turn that off, you know, and everybody's trying to, well, how do you turn it off? And here, right in the middle of the day, in a hotel room, is a pornographic movie. Now, I know you didn't know that. I'm talking to a group of innocents, right? Because a lot of you never stay in hotels. But if you ever travel and you go to a hotel, then you know it. And you know it is right there. Now, laws finally made the 7-Eleven store take the penthouse and the Wii and the uh, Playboy and Playgirl, that's for the ladies who want to look at naked men, and to put them back there and to put a board in front of them with just the headline peeping out so that the front cover of the girl saying, let's get to know each other, is not visible uh, to the little kids who come in to the 7-Eleven store or the neighborhood grocery store. Is there a doubt in your mind, as you look at all that we call entertainment, as you look at the incredible number, I think it is something like 1.5 million worldwide now who have AIDS, at the incredible statistics of infectious venereal diseases among our population, and then at homosexuality reaching all the way into government, into the Senate and the Congress, and of course lawyers, doctors, dentists, etc., and the poor woman who was in Washington, D.C. to plead her cause during the Feast of Tabernacles who was dying from AIDS that she got from her dentist when she's sitting in the dental chair, for pity's sake. So if there's any doubt in your mind that God would look down upon us in the modern United States of America with the same kind of anger that he once looked down upon this city, think again. Chapter 19, there came two angels to Sodom. You can read back in chapter 18 of how there were three beings, one of whom is the one who became Christ, who visited Abraham or Abram, Abraham now, and said that Sarah was going to have a child, and how in verse 22 it said they went toward Sodom, and God had sent them to destroy Sodom. And then Abraham began to ask, well, if you can find X number of people, will you spare it? Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot 
seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and you shall rise up early and go on your way. Lot sensed or knew, probably from a combination of their dress, and maybe God revealed it to him, I don't know, that these were really special people, special men, special messengers. And he pressed upon them greatly. And they turned in unto him and entered into his house. And he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread. So it might have been during the days of unleavened bread. Who knows? Or at least it was not, they hadn't been revealed yet, but maybe it was that same time of the year. And I think there is some indication here that unleavened bread was fitting for the occasion. They did eat. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, I don't take that it means the entire, uh, whatever they were, 100,000 of them or whatever there were there, these queers, but that neighborhood, at least a whole gang of them, maybe 18 or 20 or 30, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. So they were from all over the city, all right. It was a big gang of people. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. Now, that tells you an incredible amount, doesn't it? That's talking about orgies in public, in the street, unbridled, absolute uh, bestial behavior beyond our ability to comprehend. Yet it was commonplace. Lot went out of the door unto them and shut the door after him and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold now, and I've taken issue with this before, because remember it says righteous Lot back in the book of Hebrews. And it talked about that righteous man who could barely tolerate the civilization in which he lived. Yet he had to have been somewhat perverted by his society, or how could he have made this offer? Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. And we're not sure as we read this account whether they were betrothed, already having been married because it mentions his sons-in-law, or whether in fact he had at least four daughters or more, two of whom were younger, but the others of whom had already been married. It isn't really quite clear. I have two daughters which have not known man. They were virgins, probably young teenagers. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do you to them as is good in your eyes. Incredible. Offering his own beloved little girls to a mob of filthy, rotten homosexuals. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. What kind of value is it? What kind of, of a... Uh, you know, you just try to wrestle with this in your own mind and say, well, what kind of a society was it in which this man lived, and what kind of knowledge did he have about the nature of these men? Did he already know that they were angelic messengers? He must have. Did he know they'd come from God? If he had, why didn't he turn to them and say, help me, go out there and deliver me from these people? So it really is puzzling in a lot of ways, but it is insight, too, into how society can rub calluses on people's values and on their conscience, and how a thing like this, which is so abhorrent to us in God's church today, seemed to be the logical way out of this situation to Lot back then. There's not a one of us who would have daughters who could even begin to imagine such a thing occurring. And they said, Stand back. And they said again, This one fellow came into sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. 
Now will we deal worse with thee than with them? And they pressed sore upon Lot and came near to break the door. So they're also going to, without getting into detail, attack Lot and say, we're going to have an orgy out here. But the men put forth their hand. They opened the door a crack. The angelic messengers there grabbed Lot, pulled him into the house, and shut the door. And they smote the men miraculously that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, that's older and young, and so on, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. And it's also interesting that even though they went blind, they groveled at the door like a bunch of animals running around with their hands, feeling on the wall, trying to find how to get in, but they're already blind. Now, that's perseverance, isn't it? Instead of saying, what's happened? I can't see. They're going to persevere to attack these people. It's unbelievable. You get a little bit here of what God thinks, in case you get upset with me and my taking issue with homosexuality sometime, I really don't care. Just go ahead and take issue with me, and then look at what God thinks about homosexuality. The men said in the lot, Have you any here besides? Son-in-law and your sons and your daughters, and whatsoever you have in this city, bring them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Eternal, and the Eternal has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, which married his daughters. That's what I referred to earlier and said, Up, get you out of this place, because God is going to destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. How many people will ever really believe a warning and a witness when you give it to them of impending acts of God, whom they feel does not exist and has gone way off somewhere? So it just seemed like a ridiculous claim to them, and they didn't believe Lot. And when the morning arose, the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters, which are here which strongly seems to indicate the other two daughters lived nearby with their sons-in-law, and perhaps he had four or more girls. Lest you be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, he wasn't in that big of a hurry. He was taking his time. The men laid hold upon his hand. They had to grab him by the hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and sent him without the city. And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, he said, Run for your life, escape for your life, and don't look back. Do not look behind you. Do not stay at all in this whole valley or this plain. Escape over to the mountains, lest you be consumed. Lot began to argue, Oh, please, don't let it be thus, my Lord. Not so, my Lord. Behold now, thy servant has found grace in thy sight. And you have magnified thy mercy, which you showed unto me in saving my life. But I can't go to the mountains. I'm not a mountain man. I, I would perish up there. I wouldn't know how to survive. I don't want to go to the mountain. How about some little, little town? Now, there's a little city over here, a little bitty city. Let me escape over there. Isn't it a little one? And that way I can remain alive. I can live if I can be around people and stores and places to have provisions and find a place to have a roof over my head. And he said, All right, see, I've accepted you concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till you become thither. Therefore, the name of that little town was called Zoar, which there's one like that up in Colorado. It's called Littleton. And that's really what it means, Littleton. Just a little town, Littleton. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Littleton, or Zoar, 
And the Eternal rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah fire and brimstone from the Eternal out of heaven. I think God looked down from his wrath, and as he saw these people leaping and dancing in flames, was saying, so be it, because he knew it was just and it was merciful to destroy those wretched human beings with their filthy habits. I had a young mother come to me one time, and we get mail. We've had tearful letters. We had one only a few weeks ago. In our, I had a young mother come to me whose young teenage son was in a Texas prison and was just beside herself because of the threats of other men inside prison against that boy. It is something I know we don't want to think about. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to even hear about it. Well, God hates that kind of thing, and he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah by fire. He overthrew those cities and all the plain and the inhabitants of the cities which grew upon the ground. His wife looked behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Some people argue that isn't literal. It doesn't mean that she became literally changed from flesh into a halite, but uh, others argue, yes, it is literal. Uh, I don't know if we should take it literally. I tend to think, yes, we should. But some sources claim that that was the symbol of a perpetual monument or a perpetual reminder. But it's just because they don't want to believe that God had the power to do something like that. If God had the power to make a man out of red clay and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, he had the power to turn that woman into a stack of salt. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Eternal. He looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And behold, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. It would be like saying, all of Dallas and Fort Worth burnt last night. And we can walk out here and see, and there's just a giant pall of smoke ballooning up in the air, a hundred miles distant, and God had destroyed both of those cities. Abram is looking over there. Abraham is looking over there and sees nothing but smoke boiling up where cities had been. It came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, which he overthrew the cities in the which Lot dwelt. And Lot then, it scared him so bad, he immediately left Littleton, or Zoar, and said, Forget it. Who needs a town? I'm going to the mountains. And he went up into a cave. Then you read of how the society had affected his daughters of their conspiracy of how they got their own father drunk. It was a scene right out of On the Beach back in the 1950s. They began to assume we are the last human beings alive. And they decided we've got to preserve seed for mankind on the earth of our father. And incest took place at their own contrivance. And Edom and Moab and those nations that have continuously fought against, hated, resented Israel and Judah, and uh, absolute implacable hatred that exists to this day of the Edomites and the Moabites. I should say the Ammonites, I beg your pardon. Moabites and the Ammonites, not the Edomites, but the Moabites and the Ammonites to this day, as you read in the last verses, hate Israel, and they were the children from an incestuous relationship between Lot and two daughters when Lot was completely oblivious and didn't even know it. Now let's turn to Luke 17, where Jesus Christ, in this particular version, which is a little more detailed than Matthew's version, of how it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. As in the days of Noah, but he also adds Lot here, which in Matthew's account it is not quite so detailed. As it was in the days of Noah, 
so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage. And that doesn't mean that was wrong. It doesn't mean they were overeating or drinking substances they shouldn't, although that certainly is implied, but it's just saying they were living normally. They were living their lives according to their standards of that day. Until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone, just like a nuclear explosion over Hiroshima that took place in the air over the city, and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, just to ask you in retrospect, looking back at what I mentioned at the Feast of Tabernacles about this little booth in which I dwell, the little tabernacle in which you dwell. When the Israelites went into the Promised Land, it was a brand new generation. The carcasses of the entire generation that had come across the Red Sea dry shod that had come out of Goshen, died in the wilderness, and were buried. The entire older generation didn't make it. A newly born generation engendered in tribulation in the wilderness, with the single exception of the house of Caleb, you see, came across the, the river Jordan into the Promised Land and left behind their little ramshackle tabernacles. They left behind the tents and all the things that they had lived in temporarily. I am not fireproof. My hair is not fireproof. The jacket I am wearing is not fireproof. My shirt, my trousers, my shoes are not fireproof. And neither are my fingers, toes, nose, ears, or eyes. A very good friend of mine that I used to enjoy talking to, and I played golf with him dozens of times. He had a very infectious laugh, and he had an old beat-up golf cart that needed some, some uh, ball bearings on its right wheel. We could hear him coming from way down there. It was named Art Kelhoffer. Well, Art was a two-pack-a-day man. He lived down in Houston, and he had a kind of a vacation cottage up here at Emerald Bay. And uh, I knew his wife fairly well, and she moved away and his daughter. But Art asked when he died to be cremated, and he died of cancer, of lung cancer, several years ago. I didn't know what he had privately asked his wife to do, actually a little bit illegal, but they did it in long since, too late to do anything about it. But number nine is a hole where you have to hit a pretty long drive across a lot of water. It's a very difficult hole, and with prevailing south winds in this region, makes it much more difficult. And Art could almost never get across that water. He about went broke. We used to make jokes about how Art, if you just keep on hitting it, you're going to raise, you know, raise the level of the lake, and we'll get a higher lake out of it. Or if you want to find out where you're hitting all those balls, you can walk across there dry shod. But old Art would hit a whole lot of balls into the water. So after he had gone, he asked his wife to spread his ashes all over the number nine fairway. And at night in her golf cart, she took a little urn with Art's ashes, and she went out there, and she sprinkled them all over number nine. That was several years ago. Now, Art became fertilizer for grass and became a part of number nine. I'm only reminding us of that 
that every day somewhere in this United States there are people whose loved ones are carrying out their requests before they died, and they're being reduced from this human frame and shape, big 240-pound men, a little slim 112-pound women, to a little jar of ash, right? They're being converted, changed into light, heat, energy, gas, and ash. And that's all that's left. All that was left of Art Kelhofer was sprinkled out on number nine to become just so much fertilizer. I'm not fireproof. My tabernacle in which I live is not fireproof, but my spirit is. The new creature in Christ cannot be destroyed by fire. Remember I mentioned during the sermon, how, uh, during the feast, how Jesus said, Don't fear man who after he has killed the body cannot kill the soul. And explain the word soul, suke, which means that spirit life of a combination of your human spirit with God's Holy Spirit, which man cannot destroy. It says, Even thus shall it be, raining fire and brimstone from heaven, in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, don't let him come down to take it away. Remember I asked about if you were in a fire, what is the most valuable thing you can think about? How valuable are our physical possessions after all? And he that is in the field, likewise, not return back to his home to get some valuable thing. Remember Lot's wife. That isn't my idea. That's not a favorite topic of mine. Those are the words of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Because he wants us to have our hearts, our desire, our yearning, our fascination, our concentration, our meditation on God's kingdom, on heavenly things, and not on things on this earth. And I submit to you that most of us in our childlike state as Christians are still far more attuned to the things of this life, this world, this society, with all of its entertainment and its glitter and glamour and its tinsel-wrapped entertainment and enjoyment and the things, as it says, the one who had forsook the, quote, pleasures of sin for a season, etc., rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, and how that we're not to envy sinners, but be thou in the fear of the eternal all the day long, because many people look at sin as if something it is something that is desirable, something that is good, that we ought to desire. There's an attitude that prevails among those who let themselves drift into complete pharisaicalism in God's church. If a man sin, or a woman sin, if somebody sins, do they get away with it? I've asked that question before. The Pharisee says, yes. He says, they had fun. And I can't have that fun. And that makes me mad. What is the attitude of Jesus Christ? It is the same as a mother toward a precious child who, because it disobeys, is injured, cut, or burnt. A combination of total, agonizing, doubled-over heartache just kills you inside of a beloved child to be terribly hurt especially after you've warned them, don't do that, don't do this, that's hot, put down that knife, don't play with that gun, don't go out with that boy, don't go out with that girl, don't run with that gang. 
whatever it is you try to tell them, don't make that mistake, and they go ahead and make it, it just kills you inside. You don't get mad and say, you dirty little so-and-so, now I'm really going to get you. If you're a parent, neither does Almighty God, whose mercy endureth forever. He loves us while we are yet sinners. He doesn't love us in our sin. He doesn't love us with our sin. He loves us. When we sin, we hurt ourselves, and we hurt the other person against whom we're sinning or our partner in sin. Everything is hurt. Everything is wrong. It causes God pain and grievousness. It says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit unto which you were sealed until the day of redemption, etc. And you've got to think about grieving God when we sin. Jesus said, not Garner Ted Armstrong, it's not a pet peeve of mine, it's not a pet subject of mine, it's an important, vital principle for salvation. Remember Lot's wife. She was so attached to her society, she was such a part and parcel of it, she was so attuned to the rumble of the wheels and the cacophony of sound out in the streets and all of the people hawking their wares and the way the fresh loaves of bread smelled and the trip to the agora, the marketplace, and the way of life and all of her friends and the clubs and the things that she went to and the things she enjoyed in Sodom. That she just looked back. Well, how are they faring back there? And God wasn't going to have it. He wanted complete severance. He wants rip the roots out. The angel grabbed her by the hand. Follow the angel. Keep your hand in the hand of the angel who's leading you out of Sodom. She looked back. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. And he meant what he said. How can we be attached to Sodom, to San Francisco, to pornography and homosexuality and divorce and bestiality and incest and rape and murder and gangs and robbery and mayhem that goes on in this earth nonstop. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, that is, perpetuate his life, his way of life, preserve it in its evil context in this world, shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life, and of course, as he says in Matthew 24, for my sake, shall preserve it. I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed, the one shall be taken, the other left. For years the church taught the exact opposite of the truth of that verse. It says in Matthew 24, they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So the context of being taken was destruction. The church for decades taught being taken was being taken to a place of safety. The one left is the one left behind to suffer the tribulation. The one taken is whisked away to Petra. Nonsense. The truth is the exact 180 degree opposite of that. The one who is taken is the one who is arrested. The knock on the door comes, two men get up, one of them is grabbed, seized, and taken out to be destroyed, and the other is left. He's protected. That's exactly the connotation in both Matthew 24 and here in Luke 17. Whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you, in that night, two men in a bed, one taken, the other left. Two women grinding together, one is taken, the other left. Two men in the field, one shall be taken, the other left. And they said, Where is all this going to happen, Lord? And he said, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. Where, Lord? Wherever the carcass is, that's where the vultures and the eagles and the carrion, the raptors, the birds of prey, circle. 
Where, Lord? Where you are? Because Christ is coming to you. You don't have some third party run up to you and say, Christ came last night and he's over there because he's coming to you for you to catch you up and so on. All right. I read in the twelfth chapter of Romans, we're not to be conformed to the world. Revelation 18.4, I won't turn to that, says, Come ye out of her, Babylon the great, and be not conformed to this world. Again, it says, Not to be a part of Babylon the great, that you receive not of her plagues. In 1 John 2 and verse 15, turn to that right quickly, 1 John 2 and verse 15. Love not the world, and it is talking about the orderly system or the society. It doesn't mean love not the Oregon coastline or Kansas wheat fields or an Australian uh, vista or something or the Swiss Alps. It is talking about customs, civilization, society, false values. Neither the things, material things, that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now think of that deeply. If you love it, if you're part and parcel with it, if you if you think that I'm really too hard on Liz Taylor, and you just think that boy, I mean old Ted, he's up here ran away and just really poking holes in a lot of the people I really enjoy. I don't think there's a person in this room that thinks that. But just in case somebody out there in the hinterland in the tape program does, I've got to cover all the bases here. You better think again. The love of the Father does not reside in any one of us in God's church who are part and parcel with the world. Any of you girls who think that Tom Selleck is a hunk and you'd like to have him, the love of the Father is not in you. Any of you men who think you'd like to be number nine, the love of the Father is not in you. Uh, you think that, oh boy, if you, could, if you could be in Hollywood or you could be part of this society and you could just be have its fame and its fortune, you could be on Johnny Carson or whatever, the love of the Father is not in you. If you just desire, you just can't stand to miss a single issue of, of what is it? There are four or five different soaps that sprung off from Dallas all over. Maybe they're still going. I have the faintest idea, but there were several of them. And you just got to have them. You got to see them. The love of the Father is not in you. The love of Sodom is. The love of this civilization and its way of life is. The values of this rotten, filthy civilization are alive and well, beating vibrantly, thriving, uh, full steam ahead in your mind and heart. But the Holy Spirit of God is not. For all that is in the world, tell me what that means. That doesn't mean automobiles, does it? That doesn't mean Kawasaki's and motorbikes. That doesn't mean 90 energy slaves in the kitchen. That doesn't mean homes and double ovens. That doesn't mean glamorous people and beautiful clothes and costume jewelry. Surely that doesn't mean Corvettes, not Rolls Royces. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, things to taste, to indulge in, to imbibe, to, to enjoy, to see, to feel, to smell. And the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And like that little old ramshackle boot, they turned around and left and walked across the river dry shod to inherit their permanent dwelling place. So the world passes away, and the lust thereof but he that doeth the will of God abides forever. And that is fireproof. 
we, if we are doing the will of God, if we have been transformed, if we've really been changed, we will survive. How many people do you know who just seem to be the same all the time? I've remarked on that in times past. It seems that people do not really change. Well, you know, Mr. and I were talking, let me just pass on something to you that I feel is a, a little bit of an accolade for a lot of people who are volunteers and who give a great deal of their own time and so on. We were talking about some of the sermonettes and some of the sermons and things that we heard during the Feast of Tabernacles and of the remarkable progress that many men have made of the difference between many men that we had heard three or four or five years ago and men that we heard this year. Right up here in the upstairs or back there in that classroom, over the last several months, we have had four of these leadership training programs to which we've invited a lot of our ministers and potential ministerial candidates and other leaders in the church who may serve as a deacon or whatever at some time, including a lot of the women who may never be ordained to any capacity or may become deaconesses. Many of them will simply serve as lay members. But they have been here, and I think it has really shown uh, we saw far more maturity and experience and an example of real growth on the part of quite a number of men during the Feast of Tabernacles this year. I saw a church that has grown a great deal this year. Every place I went, every single festival elder was just shaking his head in amazement and telling me of the beauty of the attitude of God's people. It was a flawless Feast of Tabernacles so far as I know. Now, there may have been a problem. If there was, I didn't even hear about it. So don't come and tell me about it. I don't want to know. If I didn't have to find out during the feast, I hope that it was solved locally. I didn't hear about it. It was just a fabulous environment everywhere I went. And that was tremendously encouraging to see that kind of growth of God's people and the difference in the spirit. We had a couple come up to me, and they had been at the uh, festival, I think, at a worldwide festival for the first half, and they came down to our festival for the second half. And it was obvious the contrast that those people were experiencing and the contrast in sermons and their content and delivery and especially the attitude of God's people who were there. So let's grow closer together as a church and closer toward God's kingdom and the values of Jesus Christ and further and further away from this world and its false values, which are of Sodom, which God hates.